Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center. We're in Random Lake, Wisconsin. It is Saturday, September 4th, 2021. It's good to have you with us here. See many of you checking in. Uh, let's see, you got Mom, you got uh, Michael, you've got uh, Gus and Eileen, I see Tim, Don and Karen, and Karen, good to have you. Uh, yeah, surgery, well, you can read that on your own in the chat there. Um, my father's surgery was successful, and they're working on uh, getting him off the ventilator today. So, God willing, we'll be able to do that. Uh, let's see, today is Saturday, and as I mentioned yesterday, during the school year, um, on Saturdays, what we do is uh, some meditative readings uh, or some consideration of the Old Testament and Epistle for tomorrow. Normally, I preach from the Gospel text. Um, the Gospel text for tomorrow, uh, Trinity 14, is also the Gospel text appointed for a day of Thanksgiving. Um, so, I've preached it quite a bit. Although, for the day of Thanksgiving, I typically actually don't use those propers. I use the ones that are for a harvest festival. Uh, which really actually works out pretty well here <laughs> for our congregation, because by the end of November, uh, the harvest is usually complete, right? And so it's a good way to remember um, with Thanksgiving all that God has generously given us from this earth, right? So um, yeah, normally preach from the gospel text. So that typically means that we also don't look with too much detail at the Old Testament and epistle unless it um, ties in. And as you know, with lectionaries, um, the three readings sometimes have common themes, sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes it's just con continuous readings. Uh, the Old Testament in particular is an appendage on the divine service. Typically, uh, the, service of the sa service with the Lord's Supper Sunday morning um, was only epistle and gospel. And the Old Testament texts were appointed uh, for matins or, or vespers. Um, I think typically matins. So uh, the early morning service on Sunday um, or also throughout the week. Um, I don't have any problem having it in the divine service on Sunday, but uh, that does mean that it doesn't often have uh, significant relevance to the other readings. So that's the reason if you've ever wondered why, it, I, would, I would suggest you think of it this way, the Old Testament and the Psalm, not the introit Psalm, but the, the Psalm that comes after the Old Testament reading, those two are of a kind. Those go together. Um, the Psalm was chosen to pair up with the Old Testament reading and then sometimes we shift gears and we change themes a little bit and the epistle then will direct us to the gospel. Sometimes, sometimes the epistles are just continuous. Week to week, we hear from the same book and then they don't really seem to have all that much to do with the gospel reading either. So lectionaries, they're imperfect, um, but they're also uh, beneficial because they force us to, um, to consider texts that maybe we wouldn't otherwise consider. All right, so there's a little introduction for today. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, and the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
All right, we say our memory verse for this week. Maybe at this point, uh, now you know it by heart. You can try to do it without looking. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, verse 26. All right, we pray our psalm this week, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I also see Andrew checking in there on Twitch. Good to have you, Andrew. Um, Like I do on the end of the week, having prayed the psalm all week, I think it's helpful to now consider um, a devotional reading on the psalm to help uh, solidify maybe the words that uh, you have entered your ears and now into your heart. All right, and again, these come from uh, Patrick Henry Reardon, his excellent book, Great for Devotional Reading, Christ in the Psalms. All right, oh, that's next week. Here we go. Just as the previous Psalm of Ascent raised our eyes to those mountains from which our help shall come, Psalm 121, or Hebrew 122, now shows us that the holy city on the top thereof, the perfecting goal of our pilgrimage, I was elated when they said to me, we shall go into the house of the Lord. In your very courts our feet were standing, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem fashioned as a city, the abode of shared communion. For unto her have the tribes ascended, the tribes of the Lord, a testimony unto Israel, to confess the name of the Lord. For in her were set thrones of judgment, thrones over the house of David. O pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the prosperity of those who love you. May there be peace in your power and prosperity in your towers of strength. For the sake of my brethren and my loved ones, I have discoursed of your peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I have been zealous for your good. And he translates to English from um, the Greek, the Septuagint of the psalm. This psalm is about Jerusalem, obviously. (laughs) But what Jerusalem? Surely not any city we may find on a map. And certainly not that rebellious city that is not willing to repent, that killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her, Matthew 23, 57. Most emphatically, not that city, quote, where also our Lord was crucified, Revelations 11, 8. Nor indeed the city where the eagles gathered together as around a carcass, nor one stone thereof was left upon another, Matthew 24, verse 2 and 28. Jerusalem in Psalm 121 is, rather, the city on high of which it is written, quote, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, Galatians 4.26. It is the city concerning which it is said to us, quote, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22. 
It is the city whose name is emblazoned on our brows, quote, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, Revelation 3, verse 12. But if this Jerusalem is firstly the church in heaven, it is also then the church on earth. And these two are the one reality that our psalm calls, quote, the abode of shared communion. All right, and that is, uh, he's translating, uh, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together as the abode of our shared communion. Moreover, just as all things are defined by relation to the purposes for which they exist, the church on earth receives her very identity from the church in heaven. She exists on earth only with a view to heaven. Heaven alone holds the key for her being. For God already, quote, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, verse 6. Our psalm captures both these aspects of Jerusalem. She is the goal of those tribes ascending into the house of the Lord and even now the courts where our feet are standing. How then should we understand this peace of Jerusalem, see verse 6, for which we pray? Again, two senses seem intended. The most obvious is to understand Jerusalem as the beneficiary of this peace, meaning pray that Jerusalem will have peace. Pray that the church on earth will enjoy tranquility and which to serve God with an undisturbed and quiet mind. Surely this is an appropriate prayer, and the traditional texts of our worship abound with examples of it. Thus, we pray for, quote, the peace of the whole world, for the good estate of the holy churches of God, and for the union of all men which is one of the petitions of the Kyrie each Sunday, right? But praying for the peace of Jerusalem bears an even deeper meaning, for Jerusalem's very name indicates peace. Thus, an ancient hymn of the Holy Church speaks of the Urbs Jerusalem Beata Dicta Pacis Visio, translated, Blessed City Jerusalem, called the Vision of Peace. The, quote, vision here, of course, is that of St. John, who in prophecy beheld the final descent of the city to the renewed earth, Revelation 21, verse 2 and 10. Taken in this sense, to pray, quote, for the peace of Jerusalem means to pray that even now we may enjoy and measure the peace of eternal life. This prayer, too, it is most appropriate to make. Truly, we pray at first, even before praying for the peace of the whole world and the good estate of the holy churches of God, we are careful to pray, quote, for the peace from above and for the salvation of our souls. We pray that Kyrie as well. For the one is the wellspring of the other. The peace for which we pray is not that which the world gives or more often fails to give. It is the peace with which the risen Lord greets us when ever again he enters through the locked doors, for such is the meaning of the doors, the doors, and breathes his Holy Spirit upon us and tells us to touch our fingers to the everlasting wounds. There, that's the Easter appearance. All right, so um, as is the case often with the scriptures, uh, they are multivalent, if you want to use a technical term. Um, they have layers of meaning, kind of like an onion, right? Um, that you can peel, and you find multiple meanings on top of each other. So, uh, But it's not the earthly Jerusalem. We're talking about the, the church on earth, but first and foremost, the church of heaven, by which the church on earth is a reflection. All right, and that is the Jerusalem from above. All right. 
Our Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Hear, my son, receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter into or unto the perfect day. And the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ears to my, my ear, excuse me, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Okay. Uh, for our meditation then, to consider this, it's, I'm going to use uh, some commentary from uh, Dr. Andrew Steinman, who's uh, at Concordia Chicago. He was, or at least he was when I, I was there. Did he move? I don't know where he is now. <laughs> uh, you know, professors tend to move around here and there. Um, Dr. Steinman writes this. This is Solomon's fifth address in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, expressed as a father speaking to his son. Right? And actually, it's the fifth and the beginning of the sixth, which begins here in verse 20. Right? It builds on the previous address to the plural sons. That's chapter 4. Here, the father repeats the promise of life. He then emphatic, or emphasizes that he has taught his son the way of wisdom, recalling how he had received the instruction from his father, David, before passing it on. Proverbs 4, 10 through 19 reintroduces the metaphor of life as a path, previously mentioned in chapter, in chapter 3. It depicts the father as leading his young son along the proper path of wisdom. This path enables true freedom in life and leads to the resurrection to eternal life or the tree of life in, in chapter 3, verse 18. And see also chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and later, and also Daniel 12. Again, the path enables true freedom in life and leads to resurrection to eternal life because it is the path of the gospel. Solomon is therefore teaching his son to value the gospel in which is declared righteousness before God, solely by grace, apart from any human effort. You can see how he uses the words righteousness in chapter 1 and 2 and righteous in chapter 2, 3, and 4. The gospel sets people free from the bondage of sin and death to live a new and everlasting life by the power of Christ. Right? And we'll see that in our uh, epistle as well. A stride that is not restricted and a path that will not cause runners to stumble, Proverbs 4 verse 12, symbolize this freedom. The father urges his son to hold on to this gospel liberty that he has found because it is his very life. Verse 13. Similarly, Paul urged the Galatians to stand firm in their freedom uh, in Christ. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We'll hear that in a minute. The Lutheran Confessions quote the, the passage, this passage 
to denounce human ordinances, or he quotes uh, the Galatians passage, I should say, um, to denounce human ordinances and regulations that some churches impose on their people as necessary for salvation. Quote, it is necessary to preserve the teaching of Christian liberty in Christendom, namely that bondage to the law is not necessary for justification, as St. Paul writes in Galatians 5 verse 1. For the chief article of the gospel must be maintained, namely, that we obtain the grace of God through faith in Christ without our merits. We do not merit it by services of God instituted by men. Uh, that's uh, Augsburg Confession, Article 28, Paragraph 51 to 52. There you go. Augsburg Confession 28, if you want to go look that up. Solomon then... Here, our text, reminds his son that another path is available to him, one that he should avoid. That's in verse 14. It is the path that it is this path that the wicked people take. To underscore the danger of this path, he forbids his son from considering such a course in life with a series of terse, sharp imperatives. Avoid it, do not travel on it, turn away from it, pass on, right? To suppress every desire for what or what can seem to be an attractive way of life, the Father describes the pathetic state of those who take the evil path. This is verse 16 and 17. They cannot sleep, eat, and drink unless they uh, are engaged in some sinful activity. They are enslaved to the sinful life that they have chosen. As Jesus explains in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. Then Solomon closes out this address by introducing another metaphor, that is, of light and darkness, and combining it with the metaphor of the path. He compares the path that righteous people walk uh, to the light that increases in brightness. That's verse 18 there. Solomon depicts for his son the growth in grace and knowledge of God that is given in the gospel. Note that the righteous themselves are not the light, but the way in which they are to walk is the light. Right? It's the path that's the light. And of course, this way is Christ, who is both the way or the path, John 14, 6, and the light of the world, John 8, verse 12, and also Isaiah 9. As we walk in Christ, guided by the light of the knowledge of God, the dawn of the new day grows brighter and nearer. When the last day finally dawns, all darkness shall be banished, and we shall enter the new creation of everlasting day and light. Revelation 21 and 22. The path of the wicked people is depicted as the opposite. That's in verse 19 there. It is dark, and consequently they stumble. See John 12 and 1 John 2. The contrast between the safety God gives the righteous on the path of wisdom Versus the danger faced by the wicked on their evil path is heightened by the threefold use of the verb uh, to stumble, which is uh, kashal, and you see that in verse 12, verse 16, and verse 19, kashal. Solomon promises his son that even if he should run on the righteous path, he will not stumble. Those on the evil path try to trip others. They are always making someone stumble. Yet their wickedness causes their downfall. They themselves stumble, and because they are in the dark, they neither know over what they stumble. Verse 19. They shall be consigned to everlasting gloom and night. Jesus uses the same contrast between walking with faith in him and the light of the world versus stumbling in darkness without him before he raised Lazarus from the dead. In John 11, he says, If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So also Solomon calls his son, on his son and on the reader of the Proverbs, to walk in God's light so that he can walk through this life and to everlasting life with wisdom as his guide. All right, so that's up through verse 20. Um, And then, unfortunately, the way the election's set up, it cuts off here with just a few verses um, from the now sixth address, which begins there at verse 20. Again, my son, give attention to my words. All right, now I'm give you a little bit of a bigger picture of what happens here in those last four verses, um, which you can see there, start in verse 20. The uh, first thing is that um, in the sixth address, he instructs the son to avoid evil by focusing actually on the parts of the body. So we have, uh, pay attention to my words, open your ears to my sayings, do not let them escape from your eyes, you see that in verse 21, keep them in the midst of your heart, right? Guard your heart, verse 23. Um, And then if we had the rest of the verses, verse 24 has turn yourself away from perverse speech, right? Speaking. Let your eyes, again, look straight ahead. Make a level path for your feet. Do not bend, which is a bodily image, right? And then turn your feet away from evil. The weaving of 10 body parts through the 10 mandates in this address serves to unite them into one instruction. Especially the early mandates in this section can serve as gospel invitations to receive and believe God's word and so be saved and be preserved in that salvation throughout this life until the hearing son or believer enters into the fullness of everlasting life, verses 22 and 23. While these imperatives could easily be seen as only commands so that this section would be primarily law, God's demands for what people must do, it should be understood within the larger context as one of the ten speeches from the father to his son which have predominantly gospel emphases, right? As we talked about in the last one, the early part of this reading. They are invitations to walk in the light of the gospel. For those who are already believers, they also can serve as the third use of the law, which presupposes the gospel. Third use meaning the instructive use to the new man. All right. The, the address opens with the familiar admonition to heed and accept the Father's instruction. However, Solomon makes this admonition unique by his introduction of the parts of the body, as we just said. He tells his son the reason why he should accept his instruction. His words are life and healing, verse 22. This twofold promise emphasizes both the temporal blessings of life and health now, and also the eternal promise of God for the resurrection to eternal life hereafter, much like we talked about with the two Jerusalems, right? Jerusalem below and Jerusalem above. So same thing here talking about the life health, life and health now versus, and also then the life of the resurrection um, hereafter. The assurance that the divine words of wisdom passed down from the Father will be the healing for the entire body will be finally fulfilled by the resurrection of the body on the last day when our bodies shall be glorified to be like that of the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15. Yet already now the believer has the eternal life and may receive healing. Christians are touched physically by God through the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. All right, and then uh, obviously verse 23 has to do with guarding the heart as well as verse 24, 25, etc. All right, and then it ends with uh, feet and with speech, right, and again with more warning. So I think the reason why uh, those who set the epistle included verses 20 through 23 is that they continue the gospel instruction uh, from the previous address 
and they actually kind of reverse course and go back towards the uh, um, warning um, to be attentive to the way that we misuse our bodies actually um, to speak against or to listen or to look ag- away from um, the, the path, from the gospel, the freedom that we have in Christ through his forgiveness. All right, so that's enough on the proverb. Um, now, our epistle for tomorrow is from Galatians chapter 5, as mentioned. Um, whereas there is a connection between at least chapter 5, verse 1, but we're going to read 16 to 24 tomorrow. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, uh, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All right, so Galatians 5, verse 14. I was curious about one word in there. Um, and that was, those who practice such things, right? And I was curious what the word is. And it's, uh, what is it? Pro, it's proso. Proso, that's an interesting word. Uh, so this is what happens when I'm doing study, right? I want to go find out, what does that word mean? Proso uh, has a couple different meaning, potential meanings. All right, it can mean to pass over, to accomplish, like as in, in the journey, to achieve, to bring about, to effect. Um, it can mean to make so, or to have, to do, or to be busy with. Uh, that seems to be more what's going along here. I mean, to make so, but to business. Um, to transact, to negotiate, to manage, to practice, as in, uh, you know, like an instrument. Um, to fare, or to do so. So that it has a range of meanings. Obtain a demand from another. So, um, what, what it has in mind here is being, is this is not a one-off event. These are uh, the, the lusts of the flesh, the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh, is, uh, Paul calls them here. Um, they aren't they aren't just momentary afflictions. These are things that uh, that you continue in, that you practice at. <laughs> you know, you return to over and over and get better and better at them. Um, obviously, that's in a negative sense. All right. Uh, for some catechesis on this, I'm going to use this excellent book. I don't know if you can see that. The exposure is a little off. It's called The Christian Year of Grace. It's by uh, Johann Spangenberg, who was a student of Luther, and um, and who else? Uh, I think he knew Philip too. All right, and then what he did is he, like many pastors, uh, recognized that uh, I, I should say overseeing pastors recognized that those pastors under their charge, um, say in the country churches or whatnot, um, were not well versed in um, 
just even basic understanding of the texts of the church here, of the lections. Um, so what they did is they wrote things called postals. Um, these aren't actual sermons. Um, they're often um, things like this, questions and answers um, regarding the text for the day. Right? So an important note here is that <laughs> both the epistle and the gospel text for tomorrow, uh, which Mr. Spangenberg here goes through, um, this was translated by Matthew Carver, who's doing excellent work translating some of these older works. Um, it's the same epistle and gospel 500 years ago that we have today. <laughs> All right. Um, and actually, it goes back farther than that. It goes back 1,500 years. So um, plenty of resources uh, until 19, uh, well, until Vatican II in the, in the 50s into the 60s, where they decided, ah, this old lectionary is no good, and we're going to get a new one. You know, novelty. All right, so um, like we do each day, I can do the same sort of thing um, using Mr. Spangenberg, all right, and just ask some questions. All right, how does he begin the epistle? <laughs> he says, dear brethren, walk in the spirit, right? You see it right there. And what does he mean by these words? All right, now we can see it actually does connect pretty well uh, to the Old Testament reading, right? He describes what a Christian's life is, namely a daily battle and conflict with the devil, the world, and his own flesh, and how men in conflict should be comforted, namely that they should not lose hope in tribulation nor fall back, even though they feel or find wicked desires and inclinations in their flesh, right? Tribulations will not cease while we are here in this life, as Paul himself laments in Romans 7. Thus he means, in essence, quote, Dear brethren, I admonished and warn you before that, that if you bite and devour each other, you will consume each other. By this I mean nothing but that you resist the affections and motivations of the flesh, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he does, he learned this from his teacher Luther, where he takes a small section and then expands upon it. Uh, it is as if he said, right? Um... Well, can you give an example of this? That's an interesting question. Uh, we read in the book of the ancient fathers that a young brother asked an ancient father for counsel how to be rid of his thoughts. He answered him and said, quote, You cannot keep a bird from flying in the air, but you can certainly keep it from nesting in your ears or on your head. Right? That's often attributed to Luther. Here Spangenberg says it. It actually comes from Jerome, St. Jerome. <laughs> All right? You can't keep the bird from flying in the air, but you can keep it from nesting in your head in your ears and in your head. In the same way, you cannot keep thoughts from entering and arising, but you, sh you are surely able by God's help to hinder and keep them from building a nest inside you and taking possession of your heart, right? Which is what he says. Flee them, right? Leave them. Um, how long does this conflict of the spirit and the flesh last? And Spangenberg answers, all our life. We cannot hope for peace here on earth. Christ says, in the world you have trouble, in me you have peace. In secular wars, there are times for rest, such as when it is winter or a matter of days, but here in the spiritual struggle, we cannot lay down our weapons even for a moment. We must stand constantly on guard, be ready for battle at all times, for our enemy does not sleep, but of course prowls around like a roaring lion. All right? uh, and again, he, this is Spangenberg, who is an overseeing pastor, speaking to his other pastors and publishing this. Uh, I don't know if he published it as a volume or just weekly. Um, but then he asks what seems to be a simple question, um, but it's one we must ask, right? What, what is the flesh in Paul's understanding, right? And he answers, flesh is all that is born of flesh, the whole man with body and soul, reason and all senses, inwardly and outwardly living and working, that which is for the good of the flesh and temporal life. All right, so it's the whole man. And although it speaks, writes, and thinks and teaches about high spiritual things, it is still a fleshy man. 
the St. Paul in Galatians 5 also relates heresies and sects to the works of the flesh. So we have heresies and divisions, right? Where is that? Yeah, division, dissensions and heresies. Right? So even acts of dividing the church, it belongs with the flesh, even though these are spiritual sins and lie in the heart. All right, well, then what is the spirit, right? So we have to ask that question, because that comes up here in verse 22. The spirit also refers to the whole man with body and soul, reason in all senses, inwardly and outwardly living and working, that which is for spirit and the life to come, right? So he's, he's running with what uh, we call the simul, simul justus et peccata, right? We are simultaneously sinner, 100%, but also simultaneously saint of God by declaration through holy baptism, right? Um, and although it deals with external objects and works, such as how Christ washed his disciples' feet and St. Peter fished, these were still spiritual. All right, so what is a fleshy man? He who inwardly and outwardly acts and works what benefits and appeases the flesh. Then what is a spiritual man? He who inwardly and outwardly acts and works what is contrary to the flesh and pleasing to the Spirit, namely the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, now, he imports some more meaning here, because, of course, St. Paul is running with Jesus' own teaching, right? So how do we know whether I'm following the Spirit or the flesh? Uh, well, by the fruit, says Christ, the tree is known whether it is good or bad, sour or sweet, Luke 6 and Matthew 7. In the same way, by the works, it is known whether a man is fleshy or spiritual, right? Now, how often have you heard it said, well, you can't judge me here in the church? Well, actually especially as pastor, it is my job to judge you, right, by your works. I can't judge you by anything else. I don't know what's in your heart. I can only know by, by the things you say and the things you do, right? So this is why uh, it is the job of a Christian pastor in a congregation and also the elders um, assisting the pastor, that when someone is um, outwardly confessing false teaching within the congregation or living a life contrary to um, the scriptures themselves, that we that we rebuke that person by, by God's word. That there is discipline within the church, right? We call this the, ex, the office of the keys, right? Now, if it's private, if it's secret, I can't do anything. But if it's done outwardly and if it's, if it's bold, this has happened in every congregation I've served, that we've had lay leaders especially that step forward and act outside of, outside of faith, contrary to faith. Yeah. And so, yes, we bring judgment upon them uh, but not for the sake that they be cast out and that they be, uh, or damned especially. That's not our job. Uh, it's for a call to repentance, right? This is a work of the flesh, return to the, work, to the works of the Spirit, through repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which the Spirit works in your heart, right? Yeah. So there's a question in the chat, um, can congregate, congregants judge? And um, I think if it's within your office, I mean, certainly parents do, um, of their children, um, but of one another, um, there's plenty of instruction in the scripture. I think um, I think of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and speak to him privately, right? That's Matthew 17. Um, and, you know, if he won't hear you, then take it to the elders and have those whose vocation it is to rebuke public sin, right? Or to the pastor and then to the elders, right? To the church. Um, so ultimately, the congregants only do it by under the office of the office of the keys, you know, within that office, the office of the keys, which is exercised um, by the congregation, through her pastor, usually, and sometimes also then through the elders, depending on how the congregation's polity is set up. All right. So yes, it is the job. Um, because if we don't call sin to account, if we don't call the works of the flesh, to use Paul's language here, to account, 
um, then there can be no repentance, right? If you, if you look the other way and there's no call, um, you know, no proclamation that that is sinful, um, then what do they have to repent of, right? So no judgment, no repentance. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins. So yeah, I, I know that, that judging office is kind of um, unpopular <laughs> because, you know, most, I would say most people, but frequently people will, um, will reject um, God's word when it's preached in this way, even if it's done in a spirit of gentleness and love as it should be. Um, even then, they would rather leave than change their mind or have their mind changed, I should say, by God's word. All right, so the fruits of the flesh, of course, are listed there. I always think it's funny that we list all these things that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, and we do that in church. And of course, the reward is terrible. Um, but of course, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit that the Holy Spirit works in the new man given to you in baptism, right? This is not your work. It's the work of the Spirit in you, in and through you um, are, are quite lovely, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? These are not compelled by law. These are given as a gift, right? They're, the law is not against these things. Um, it, it means that the, the Christians, they receive them freely um, uh, by, by virtue of the faith that they've been given, right? As the Spirit works in them. I've often described the work of the Spirit that way. Um, you know, our job as Christians is get out of the way and let the Spirit do his thing, right? Uh, working in and through us, right? And that's, that's what makes us truly spiritual is if we act with, uh, with intent and with direction according to God's word, like we heard from the proverb, um, and we allow God to work these gifts in us by, by way of his spirit, uh, working in and through his word and, and our baptism, right? Um, we don't have to demand it. You must love me or be it, you know, force people to be at peace. Instead, we proclaim the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? We sing in joy with the angels and the archangels, right? We, we extend the peace of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. We suffer um, with those who, who are um, caught in all sorts of uh, evil works of the flesh, right? Um, that we're patient with them and uh, continually bringing them back and restoring them through the forgiveness of sins, right? Showing kindness and goodness to them as Christ himself did, feeding 5,000 and 4,000 and showing, um, giving great healing and resurrection right? Faithfulness, of course, being a work of the Spirit, gentleness, and even self-control. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, <laughs> that we call it self-control, and yet it's not something that you can actually do. Um, the word, to look this up, it's been a little bit, I don't think I've looked it up here in a while. That's the end of verse, uh, it's in verse 23, right? Dun, 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 and epi, no, it's egg. Uh, against such there is no long. There it is. Um, Eggkrataya, which is a mastery over um, a person or thing. So it often is translated self-control, but it's to have, to have mastery or lordship over oneself. Right? So you have autonomy, um, but that doesn't often mean that you're in control of your own emotions, feelings. Uh, emotions and feelings, same thing. Um, emotions. Um, actions and words, right? So that's what it's talking about here, is that God, the Holy Spirit, working through the word, um, actually gives to you um, control um, over your flesh, right? The spirit um, is more, if you want to use the word, powerful than the flesh and brings the flesh under sub into submission, 
um, to God's word and to the goodness of God that he has expressed in that word. Right? So sometimes people think they're powerless to their sin. It's like, well, what are you saying about the spirit then? You're saying the spirit isn't power, power, more powerful. The strong, Christ is not the stronger man that can bind the strong man. And even that sin that you think is so binding, what are you saying about Jesus and, the, and his spirit? All right. So uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but there you go. You get an idea of what, um, what uh, Mr. Spangenberg does here um, to help instruct pastors. It was really a lovely text, uh, a great resource. I've been thankful to have that. Oh, I don't know when did this come out? 2015, maybe. I think. When did he translate? He translated in to the his preface. He wrote in 2014, so I don't think it came out till 15. Let's see here. Nope, came out in 2014. So, although it's from Luther's day, from the 16th century. <laughs> Good. All right. So hopefully that'll help you tomorrow. And actually, I'm going to focus a little bit more on. Um, on the path uh, of righteousness, the way that we ought to go, um, you know, remaining with Christ rather than uh, following after all of the uh, cares and uh, worries of this world, which I think we need to hear these days. Okay. Our catechism this week, the first commandment, say it with me. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. Let us pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you teach us to trust in you above all things because you are the only true and living God. You love us and provide us with everything that we need for our life and salvation. Forgive us for making gods out of ourselves. Forgive us for trusting in our own works, money, pleasures, or anything in this world more than we trust in you. By your forgiveness, teach me to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray, Heavenly Father, you teach us to call upon your holy name in prayer every day. You promise to forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. You promise to work for our good through the suffering, sickness, persecution, and tragedies that we face. For Jesus' sake, forgive us for failing to pray. Forgive us for cursing, for swearing falsely, for seeking help from Satan, and for lying or deceiving by your name. By your forgiveness, teach us to believe in your promises and in every joy and sorrow of life to pray, praise, and give thanks to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day with Ashley, who celebrates her birthday. Pray for our households, especially that of Catherine, Alan, Dennis, Neil, Robbie, and Lisa, and James. Pray for all those who are ill, receiving treatment, or recovering, especially Tristan, Marcella, Angie, Jeremy, Kelsey, uh, both Ron and Dan who are recovering from surgery, Amanda, Timothy, Janice, Sandy, Ken, and Kathy, our homebound Bev, David, Roy, Willis, and Mickey. Pray for all the missions and mercy work of our church, especially the work of LCMS World Relief and Human Care as they provide assistance to those 
affected by the hurricane and the flooding. Pray for the gift and increase of patience among us, for those still um, stranded in Afghanistan who uh, need our help. I pray for those who are grieving, especially Bill Hobbock and his family at the death of his wife Janice. Also, uh, Willis Lippert and his family at the death of his wife Janice as well. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. Prayer collect for this week. Almighty God, you gave your servant, John the Baptist, to be the forerunner of your son, Jesus Christ, in both his preaching of repentance and his innocent death. Grant that we, who have died and risen with Christ in holy baptism, may daily repent of our sins, patiently suffer for the sake of truth, and fearlessly bear witness to his victory over death. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Pray the morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Before we move on, uh, we should actually remember today's commemoration, which is uh, the prophet Moses. Moses was born in Egypt several generations after Joseph brought his father Jacob and his brothers there to escape famine in the land of Canaan. The descendants of Jacob had been enslaved by the Egyptians and were ordered to kill all their male children. When Moses was born, his mother put him in a basket and set it afloat in the Nile River. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as her son, Exodus 2. At age 40, Moses killed an Egyptian taskmaster and fled to the land of Midian, where he worked as a shepherd for 40 years. Then the Lord called him to return to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, Exodus 5. Eventually, Pharaoh gave in, and after the Israelites celebrated the first Passover, Moses led them out. At the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was destroyed, and the Israelites passed to safety on dry land, Exodus 12-15. through 15. At Mount Sinai, they were given the law and erected the tabernacle, Exodus chapters 19-40. and through 40. But because of disobedience, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself was not allowed to enter the promised land, though God allowed him to view it, Deuteronomy 34. In the New Testament, Moses is referred to as lawgiver and prophet. The first five books of the Bible are attributed to him. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, through the prophet Moses, you began the prophetic pattern of preaching to your people the true faith and demonstrating through miracles your presence in creation to heal it of its brokenness. Grant that your church may see in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the final end times prophet, whose teaching and miracles continue in your church through the healing medicine of the gospel and the sacraments. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now the benedict comes. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
And oh my, we went a little bit long today. That's okay. Tried to do a lot for you today to prepare you for tomorrow. I prepare myself for tomorrow, frankly. Um, so that's yeah, just a few minutes. Let's sing the hymn. Very good to have you all with us today. Hopefully that, uh, well, a little bit more lengthy meditation on God's Word today was a blessing to you um, in preparation for both tomorrow and really for your life in Christ today. Whether you 
uh, follow the same lectionary or not. Uh, yes, Don, thanks be to God for a successful surgery. Uh, not out of the woods yet, but uh, I know it was a little bit more fraught with difficulty yesterday, uh, but able to stop the bleeding and, uh, and plate those ribs that were broken to help with the breathing, and hopefully we can get get all that recovered now. Um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a difficult road for recovery, but I think with the plating, it, uh, the bones will heal a little quicker, so that uh, might help um, quite a bit. All right, um, so I hope to see you tomorrow for divine service in person at nine thirty. Um, do want to note? Um, I'll send this out in the email later today, um, and I won't be in the bulletin for tomorrow. But I'll have to do a verbal announcement. Those of you who are here might need to remind me after church. Um, but that the funeral for uh, Janice Lippert will be on uh, Thursday. Make sure it's on the calendar here. Yeah, Thursday at 2 p.m. with visitation at 1 p.m. here at the church. Um, So I know many of you, I think they were pretty regular attenders to the Thursday Bible study at Emmanuel, Edo, um, before they went homebound. Uh, They've been homebound for some time, my entire time here. Um, And they just went into memory care here over the last month or so, not even a month. Uh, I think they went in right, like right before we took Ethan to Seward. So just a couple, probably, what is that? Two weeks now, um, that they were in memory care, but she was progressing already at that point. Um, so that will be here at church, the visitation and, uh, the funeral service. And then of course the committal, um, in our cemetery. All right. So make plans to, uh, be here Thursday afternoon for that. And then again, Friday, um, is visitation and funeral service, um, for Janice Habeck, uh, who is former member, but a longtime member here before that, and uh, will be over in, where did we say it was? Uh, I'll make sure it's in the bullet, in the announcement uh, today, or in the, excuse me, in the email later today. Uh, it's at Ernesty in uh, Cedarburg, I think, right? So, not Oosburg, Cedarburg. Very good. So make plans for both of those later this coming week. If you're at all able to get out, uh, those families would appreciate your presence um, to assist them in their in their confession of faith and their singing and to provide the mutual consolation of the brethren, as Luther reminds us, is one of our vocational duties as Christians to comfort one another in distress. He does that in the small called articles in our Lutheran confessions. All right. So, uh, and thank you for your um, consolation here as we've been dealing with our family issues as well. So see you tomorrow. Uh, God be with you today.